You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, Twelve Lectures, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 4, entitled A Study of the Century from 1823 to 1923, given in Dornach on the 6th of July, 1923. Today I want to look at the last century from 1823 until today. From a more external point of view, you could see the reason for these observations in the fact that the writer George Sand has set her important novel titled The Journeyman Joiner or The Companion of the Tour of France that I won't be discussing here in 1823 a hundred years ago. For some people it will be possible to find inspiration in this novel, as George Sand has such a great and vivid fantasy that does more to characterize our times than many a so-called scientific historical study. We could even say that this author has succeeded in creating, out of the time, around the year 1823, especially in the west of Europe, in France, a vivid background for a momentous novel. Now, I'm not going to go into the contents of the novel, but I'll try to give you the spiritual background behind the state of society at that time. George Sand describes a number of characters who belong to the petty bourgeois craftsman class and how the adventures of aristocratic families affect these craftsmen's lives. However, what is described so superbly in this novel is the social life of the artisan class. So, allowing for differences in national character, George Sand has depicted the way in which people were confronted with the social circumstances of this era. We can trace it further back, even decades back, especially for France, to when those social conditions existed, which Goethe describes in his title Wilhelm Meister. Always allowing for differences in national culture, we can see as the background of the novel how social conditions are vividly described and how an individual outgrows these circumstances, how an aspect of their personality is captured in the fact of their rising above the social conditions of their time. As you know, the characters in Goethe's title Wilhelm Meister also rise above the social conditions of their time. In the first half of the 19th century, some people already grasped the parallels between the social background of George Sand's novel and that of Goethe's Wilhelm Meister. Of course, we have to allow for the differences of national character. Goethe's novel is thoroughly cosmopolitan and has nothing specifically national or political. Sand's novel is completely national and thoroughly political. This we have to take as given when comparing, quite legitimately, the two novels. Now, these conditions constituting the social background are characteristic of the whole manner in which the modern human being had, in the last decades of the 18th and the first half of the 19th century, worked their way from the subterranean to the surface level of human existence. 
Because today the individual human being stands alone in the social order, people can't easily imagine how things were a century ago. Even those people who are firmly attached to a profession or to a family still structure their lives in such a way that they also retain a certain freedom from these relationships and that they have room for a certain individuality. In this respect, there's been a radical change in human development in Europe, particularly in the 19th century. And the inner soul of human beings with regard to social attachment or non-attachment is quite different in the second half of the 19th century from what it was in the first half. In the first half, and we're leaving other countries out of this and are speaking only of Western Europe, human beings looked to be integrated in social relationships. They sought connections with people who had the same interests as they did, common interests which were a combination of class interests on the one hand and of professional interests on the other. For the rural population, which at the time was more bound to the land, we have to include the attachment to the earth. But for those who, in becoming craftsmen, outgrew the peasant mentality and freed themselves from their bond with the earth, we have to consider that at that time they were desperately searching for social community. And it's remarkable for this first half of the 19th century, for that time we're studying today, that notwithstanding the class and caste connections and the professional links, which provide the adhesive holding such communities together, there was a spiritual, a real spiritual background to their development. In France, however, everything tends toward the national. If we were looking at the same conditions, which in a certain way we would be justified in doing, in a German setting, then we would have to make it clear from the start that a German apprentice, for instance, would also wander abroad during his journeyman years and would take no notice of political borders when looking for an association such as I've described. But the French character, which is thoroughly nationalistic, only allowed the apprentices to wander within French borders. However, inside the French border, those communities related by class and profession that people were desperately looking for could develop and behind them we can see the impact of spiritual impulses working in the human soul. When they traveled from town to town, these craftsmen felt themselves to have a kind of spiritual home, as in each location they could find the community to which they belonged. When someone became a member of a community in a certain town, this community was represented all over France. This was a century ago. When the apprentice traveled, he would find this society, guild, in the town where he wanted to work for a while. He didn't need to carry any papers, as he had the distinctive signs of the society, a certain handshake or some other sign. When he used this special sign, then the others knew that he belonged to a certain association with branches in all the towns of the country. Now, everywhere, such societies, I have to emphasize this, were based on a spiritual impulse, and if we want to study these things seriously, then we'll find that it's quite difficult to discover just exactly what this impulse was. In France at that time, there were basically two such artisans' societies, there was the Loup d'Evaron, or Loup Garou. The other was called Gavots. Readers aside, my apologies for the attempt at French pronunciation, end of aside. 
Both of them were organized, as I've explained, and both had meetings at certain times, which were the same in the various towns. At these meetings they first practiced the secret signs, and then they had ceremonies in which they spoke in symbols and decorated the hall with symbols. There were ceremonies in which legends were narrated, which traced the societies far back in history. The Deveron or Loup Garou, the English word would have to be werewolves, traced their society back to King Solomon, and so they narrated a legend going back to him. With the Gavats, the legend with various elaborations went back to the Phrygian master builder Hiram Abith. These societies had many differences, and if we study the various customs carefully, then we can gradually discern the spiritual background, which was well known to the members. An important difference between the two groups is connected to admitting new members and the fact that in many towns both groups were represented. In various towns there were both Deverants and Gavats. Also it was a strict custom, and they watched over it carefully, that nobody would be trained in a craft who didn't go through one of these groups. So the members of the one association were Deverants, members of the other were Gavats, Each craftsman turned to the respective association when he arrived in town, which, after he had given the prescribed secret signs showing he was one of them, would then find him work in his craft. Now sometimes it happened that in one town there were many more arrivals than there were workplaces. Now the leaders of the two societies didn't know what to do. So it became a question of whether the Deverants or the Gavats should win and be able to allocate more of these workplaces. It's typical that then there was fierce enmity between the two societies, just as today there are more or less brutal rivalries between the various leaders of the trade unions, and so they had methods to decide whether the one or the other party would prevail. Often the Deverants wouldn't negotiate, but banded together in the town squares and beat the Gavats up. Then the Gavats proposed that a prize should be awarded for some task, and the judges could decide whether the Deverant or the Gavat performed better. This is a significant difference. The Deverants tended to resort to brawling and to external actions to decide the contest in their favor, the Gavats through more spiritual methods. So sometimes the one method prevailed and sometimes the other. This is a difference which reveals the spiritual background of the two societies. Another revealing difference is to be found in their methods of burying the dead. The Gavats buried their dead by walking silently behind the coffin, which was then lowered silently into the grave. To the left and right of the grave stood the most distinguished members of the society, who then whispered certain secret words to each other over the grave. Then they formed a circle and spoke again in mysterious words. The Deverants, however, accompanied their dead with remarkably loud voices. If you were standing at a distance while a funeral procession passed by, while it arrived at the grave, and while they were throwing earth on the coffin, you could hear a noise which sounded from afar like the howling of wolves. This was just the way in which the members of this society carried out the funeral ceremony and was completely sincere. They thought that they were harking back to old traditions in which people raised their voices and made powerful and wild sounds, as if they were coming from the world 
the dead person was entering and spilling over into the physical world. Here you have evidence that in these societies there were traditions from olden times originating in ancient knowledge. The burial customs of the Devarants paid tribute to old concepts of purgatory, or kamaloka as it is also known. The expression loops or wolves already indicates what lies behind this behavior. These words, or at least the idea behind the words, are used in many esoteric teachings to describe what is at work in the human astral body when intelligence is absent, when regulation through the brain is absent. What asserts itself in a passionate, emotional manner, out of the depths of human nature, and in the desire to relate to each other in such a way that we even lust after their blood, that is called in many esoteric teachings the wolf. So if we want to be honest and clear about these things, we can say that the Deverons thought that on an occasion such as a funeral, they should behave as if they had left their physical body, including the brain, behind them. And they celebrated the funeral accordingly. While the Gavat ceremony was quiet and gentle, that of the Deverons was loud and turbulent. It was like an unleashing of the astral world expressing itself in this ceremony. The symbols which played a large part in the ceremony, the structure of the legend, these all show that they brought all these elements of ancient times together in a wild way in their funeral rite. In contrast, it's quite characteristic that the other party gave themselves the name Gavats. This comes from Gave, which is the name of very small spirits who come down from the slopes of the Pyrenees below the timberline. They don't show themselves, but still come down from the heights of the Pyrenees. They are like little elemental spirits representing the people of the Grail, who used to descend from the heights of the Spanish mountains. The members of the other party, the Gavats, saw themselves as being like the little spirits who belong to the host of the Knights of the Grail. While the one party, the Deverants, wanted to express what lives in human astrality, the Gavats wanted to express what was in the capital I, according to the understanding of their times. This means that the difference between the two parties was an expression of the difference between the astral body and the human eye. And this is the astonishing thing, extremely interesting, that in the first half of the 19th century we have societies which exercise enormous influence within their class and their profession where it's the custom to belong to the one or the other, and that they have such a spiritual background. It's just a fact that people want to organize their social relationships according to their class and their profession. Thus, such societies use class and profession as a kind of adhesive. But still, such societies of the first half of the 19th century would have found it incomprehensible to have mere professional associations such as trade unions. Toward the outside, these societies were professional associations, similar to how human beings have an external physical body. But toward the inside, they were founded on the soul spiritual and attached great importance to their secret signs and symbols in which they lived and which guaranteed that the pure character of the society was preserved. Notice the huge difference between those times and ours. You have to take into account that people learned very little in school at that time, 
their intellectual education didn't come from school, where they only just managed to learn to read and write and do a little arithmetic. For the general population, other subjects were only later gradually introduced into schools. Even so, at that time, the general population weren't ignorant. Now, the saddest part of our way of looking at history is that we only ever base it on documents that can be found in the archives of the state or town or whatever. But this isn't at all real live history. We can only find that when we can look into the souls or the minds of the people of the relevant time, the relevant profession or the relevant class. Those people who were the leaders of the professions drew their soul spiritual nourishment from the meetings of their society. They didn't have an abstract school education. Now, it's interesting that as education became increasingly the task of schools, it became more and more intellectual and abstract. In all these societies, education wasn't intellectual and abstract, but had a more figurative and symbolic character, something which grasped the world in images. When they spoke about the world, they spoke in images, and these images came from the societies. And people guarded these images that they received in one or another of the societies carefully, because they knew that in knowing and using the symbols in these closed societies, the will was guided in a certain direction, and above all it was guided to attain a certain strength. Whereas abstract education doesn't influence the will at all, the kind of education these people received affected their whole person. In a sense, they were each as persons, also always representatives of what lived spiritually in their society. So these societies were very important for the world of that time. And we won't have a social history of the 19th century until we include the fact that in such associations spiritual movements were alive, which inspired the craftsmen, those people between the peasants and the nobility, and lived in their souls. Contemporary history doesn't show what lived in their souls because the historians aren't interested in it. Then, suddenly, in the middle of the 19th century, ideas appear. Ideas appear in the political parties, which developed around the middle of the 19th century, and all kinds of ideas appear in the works of the politically inspired poets. What kind of ideas are they? Anyone who knows history, real history, knows that these ideas lived in associations and weren't written down. Then, certain people started to write everything down and have it printed. This caught on, and in the middle of the 19th century it became generally accepted. Members would have resisted if this journalistic way of thinking had tried to insinuate itself into their associations. They would soon have shown anyone who tried to impose it on them the door. Their whole culture was based on the living human being. So, people who had no feeling for the living human aspect brought this lack into poetry, journalism, and into the whole culture that started to take over the world from the middle of the 19th century onward. This flows from underneath up to the top, where it takes on strange forms, which are then incorporated in official history. This kind of history is not real, because it has no idea where to find the origins of such things. It just trivializes and makes a caricature of the past. 
Sometimes there was great depth in the rituals of these old societies, which were then ridiculed by historians. In fact, these societies gave their members a soul connection to the spiritual world in the widest sense. Now, to illustrate this, the year 1823 is well chosen, because at this point a number of years have passed since the ideals of equality of the French Revolution. But these spiritual connections had persisted during and after the years of the Revolution. People still talked about the ideas of the French Revolution. But how they found their position in life, how they approached other people when they wandered from one town to another, all this was regulated according to the customs prevailing in their societies. People were rooted in social life by being members of the one or the other association. You have to consider that modern life, which we can legitimately say leads to individual freedom, begins in the 15th century, as I've often explained. The old bonds, the old ties, don't hold people together anymore. The further we go to the West, the less people are held together by these old bonds. The further we go to the East, the greater the role old blood ties play, because the old customs have survived there. As you go west, people become more and more isolated and social relationships become more individual. But people sense that they can't yet be completely independent, because complete independence will take 2,000 years and we're only in the first millennium after the 15th century. However, in the 19th century, there's been a revolution in this respect. But if we disregard the upper 10,000, as we like to call them, the nobility or the intellectual nobility, and we look at the mass of the people, then we have to say that they are resisting the process of individualization. Well, those who are in the grip of individualization are also resisting it. The nobility, the clergy, they can hold together. They have bonds. The artisans are being alienated from their bonds. And so what they are desperately looking for in these associations are bonds to replace those which don't exist anymore and which they have to create themselves. So from the 15th and 16th century onward, we see craftsmen separating themselves from the peasantry not able to reach up to the nobility, the clergy, or the clerks, but forming these associations, which are held together by a spiritual background. They strive to build up ties among themselves. And it's impressive to see that they don't look for social relationships through their craft, even if it's the craft that forms the setting for it. But they look to the soul spiritual. So they can only feel themselves truly human by having on the one hand their craft and on the other freedom within the craft to follow a worldview when this is an integral part of being human. This is the mark of the turnaround in the 19th century, that these spiritual leanings are lost, even though it's preserved in the mumbo-jumbo of all kinds of secret societies, which, however, don't have any connection to the real world. The Freemasons and other secret societies imitate what was cultivated in the craft associations, which were internally held together by spiritual bonds. And if you look at the fact that through the two branches, the Deborants and the Gavats, the members cultivated the astral and the eye, respectively, 
then we can recognize this structure of the human being working as impulses in human history. If we look at the geography, then we see that there were Gavats and Deverants all over France, but that in the northern French towns the Deverants were more numerous, and in the southern towns the Gavats. This is connected to the fact that there is a fine difference between the more southern, warmer climate and the northern, colder climate, in that the colder climate favors the development of the human astral nature, and the warmer climate that of the human eye. This is why, when we get into warmer climate zones, the difference in the color of the blood between the arteries and the veins becomes less pronounced, whereas in the north people have a distinct difference between the red and the blue blood vessels. This difference disappears the more you come into warmer climate zones. The less differentiated the color of the arterial and the venous blood, the more deeply the astral body and with it the prevailing eye configuration are immersed in their eye. The more we get into warm climes, the more eye we find. It's interesting that the external geographic conditions are connected to whether human beings tend to have more eye or more astral body. Thus we see that when we follow history, we can only recognize external historical forces when we know that in the one group of people the astral is more active and in the other the eye. Only if we know the astral being and the eye being can we really follow the driving forces behind history. What's written in the history books nowadays is just as if a person working in a telegraph office but ignorant of the technology were to write a book on telegraphy saying, I understand this better than those who have studied it because I was there. Modern historians are just like this with regard to the facts. But only someone who knows the inner operative forces really has a grasp of historic facts, and these can only be understood through inner knowledge of the human being. And it's the same with geography. Geography shows us that human beings are spread out over the various areas of the earth according to race. The races aren't only different one from the other by their hair color or the shape of their noses. They are different in the way their etheric, astral, and eye beings are integrated in the human being. This is all related to the spiritual. In the times I've been speaking of in this study of a century, even when forming a society of their own free will, human beings acted in accordance with the spiritual impulses at work in the various regions. In northern France they sought more what comes from the astral, in southern France what comes more from the eye. However, if humanity is to become one over the whole of the earth, these disparities have to be mixed with each other again. This is why we see that the longer these societies exist, the more their differences wear away and the members start to mingle with each other. At the end of the 18th century, before the French Revolution, we find how with great enthusiasm and emotion people belonged to their societies, how the Gavats were full of ambition to prevail spiritually and the Deverants to win through force. But the whole human being was involved in a worthy manner in being a member of such an association which takes into account the spiritual impulses at work in the world. 
Such things show us how fast human soul constitution can change over time. People are blind if they think they are just the same as their parents. That may possibly be true for the present, although if you know children, then you will know that in their souls they are not like their parents were at that age. But if we go back a hundred years to the time when there was this great turnaround in the middle of the 19th century, and we find that there's a huge difference in the configuration of human social relationships in comparison with today. This reconfiguration of the social entity is real history and not what you find in the archives. There is a simple book by an apprentice carpenter written about 1821, a sort of catechism for the journeyman with all the external details such as how to travel and so on. But you can learn a lot about history from it if you can see through the outward descriptions to the historic background. So, you see, even in the details, it is only possible to enliven historical reality through spiritual science. This is why spiritual science is not just an accumulation of knowledge, not just an extension of what is taught in schools today, but can only be compared to waking up in the world, to an awakening. Other sciences, and we can keep this between ourselves, can be compared to someone who pulls their nightcap over both their ears. But anthroposophy should be a real awakening. This is why it also wakes us up with regard to history. Today, in the year 1923, I wanted with these practical observations to make a start on a study of the century which goes back to 1823. George Sand's novel was just a trigger because, of course, she doesn't have any idea about the spiritual background. But with a certain instinctive genius, she describes the year 1823 and those times so vividly that the reader feels motivated to carry the study forward up to the year 1923. The end of Lecture 4